You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, everyone. It's Jim here. We're taking a short break while we prepare for the next season of the podcast. And so are using the opportunity to revisit some of our favorite interviews. This week is from World Cup winning cricket coach Gary Kirsten. Gary has many great insights into the emotional side of coaching high performance, and we hope you get as much out of it as we did. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Now you roll and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. My name is Paul Barnett, and you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast where we explore leadership through the lens of high-performance sport by interviewing great coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our teams better. Our great coach on this episode is Gary Kirsten. Gary played 101 test matches and 185 one-day internationals for South Africa between 1993 and 2004. He retired as the first ever South African to play 100 tests and the first test batsman make hundreds against each of the other nine test playing nations. He became the coach of the Indian cricket team in 2008 and led them to win the World Cup in 2011, the Border Gavaskar Trophy in 2009, the first ever test series win in New Zealand and to become the top ranked team in test match cricket. In 2011 he was appointed as head coach of South Africa and led them to also become the number one ranked test team. He has also coached the Hobart Hurricanes in the Australian Big Bash League and the Royal Challengers Bangalore in the Indian Premier League. 
Gary is a coach who is deeply authentic and comfortable expressing both his own vulnerabilities and heightened expectations. He believes that the quality of his coaching is determined by the effectiveness of his facilitation skills, and so is reflective and philosophical about the techniques needed to reach the athletes he leads. He's that rare breed of person who has been able to reach the pinnacle of his sport as both an athlete and coach, and this lends his story an added layer of credibility, whether it is talking about the deficit of mental skills he experienced as a batsman, or the importance of understanding what the environment requires of you as a leader. He is a master coach and human being, and there were many highlights for me in this interview, but some of the key ones were the story he shares about winning the World Cup with India, and how it was a change in team behaviours that helped achieve this result. How as a player, he always thrived in an environment where there was deep psychological safety, and how the best athletes in the world are able to separate the result from their performance, and this helps them manage their own anxiety and expectations. This was a great interview for me, a real highlight, and I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. The Great Coaches Podcast. So Gary Kirsten, good evening and welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast. Yeah, Paul, thank you for having me. Very excited to talk a little bit of cricket with you as we head into the Southern Hemisphere summer and all things related to Australia and the impending series. But Maybe I'll just start with something really simple, Gary. Where are you in the world and what have you been up to so far today? I'm in Cape Town, South Africa. I spend most of my days working on one of my businesses, which is called CoachEd. It's an online coach education business. There are five of us that are running the business and it's a huge amount of fun. I get to I get to kind of do coach education, which is something that I'm educating myself in every single day. It's great fun to still be a practitioner in a sport that I started as a four-year-old. Um, have been very fortunate to have had 17 years of playing and another 18 years of coaching in it. So kind of the better part of 35 years of being a professional in, in a sport that I just love doing as a, as a youngster. Well, I can't wait to go on a bit of a journey with you over those 35 years and just hear about all the great insights and people and experiences you've had along the way. And maybe we could actually just start there because you've had some experience with some really great coaches. There's people like Duncan Fletcher, Eric Simmons, and of course, Bob Woolmer. And so maybe I could start by asking you, what is it you think the great coaches do differently that sets them apart? Paul, that's a great question, and it's something that could probably take quite a bit of unpacking. And I think every coach probably has has different strengths. One coach would be a kind of one-size-fits-all kind of person for me. I think Duncan Fletcher, for example, was a great coach for me when I was a youngster because I probably needed a father figure. My, my father passed away when I was 17 years old, and he kind of came into my life when I was about a 19-year-old. So it was he kind of took on that father figure role. He was kind of direct in his leadership approach towards me. He saw he saw that I had some talent as a cricketer. And I think he gave me some good direction in terms of what I needed to do to get to the next level. Eric Simons was a little bit later in my career. I was in well into my 30s, not far from retirement. His leadership style was more around a friendship. It was more our relationship. His priority for me was for him to set up an environment that allowed me to thrive. So I think these different kind of types of leadership can be really relevant for an individual at certain phases in their lives. But if I had to unpack it and say what were the common denominators of it, it was all built around just really good relationships. And they were really good at it. They were fantastic at just 
taking care of the relationship. Duncan Fletcher, he used to phone me like four or five times a week as a 19-year-old cricketer. And he would always asking me a question about something in my game or about a net that we, that I had to get to or what do you think about our plan for the next game? And it was just nonstop communication. And then I just saw Eric as a, who was the other extreme really, as a as a friend that I could trust. If, you know, I could tell him that I was feeling very vulnerable before a game and feel comfortable that he wasn't going to leave me out the team because I was feeling vulnerable. <laughs> so I think that the strength of the relationship was really important. Gary, I had this great quote from you and I'd like to read it to you actually before I ask the question. You say, coaching is a leadership position which requires an in-depth understanding of how teams and individuals thrive and what sort of environment is needed for this. Mm. And I wanted to ask you, was there a person or experience that helped you form this belief? No, I think it was a set of experiences more than anything. I think it was the journey that I went on having the positives and the negatives. And I think that's why I'm particularly passionate about coaching. Coaching for me is you're dealing with human beings. There's so much of an art to it rather than there's a set of principles or a set of rules that you need to abide by. I've been fairly well researched in a lot of the great sports leaders of our time and really take a lot out of each one of them one way or another that could be of value to me as a coach. But the one thing I realized in doing the kind of research is every story was a different story. I mean, the way Alex Ferguson led Manchester United compared to the way Pep Guardiola led Barcelona are very different but very equally powerful stories, which made me realize you've actually got to formulate your own way. And my way has got to link up to my value system. It's got to link up to my personality and my style of leadership. Justin Langer and I, who are good mates, would be very different leaders. It would actually be fascinating to see if we could work together. In fact, I don't think we could because we have very different leadership styles. I think we have a huge respect for each other's way. It would be very different, I think, in many ways. Um, finding that, I guess for me, a lot of my philosophy was built along my own personal journey and experiences as a player. And I always thrived in an environment where there was safety and someone that really backed me and believed in me because I wasn't Matthew Hayden who walked on water almost. I mean, he, he just believed so much in his own ability. Or Virat Kohli believes in so much in their own ability. I was actually quite a vulnerable player who needed a lot of love and needed affirmation. Um, so I needed the coach who was going to provide that for me. But I also needed a, a coach who brought in a bit of structure into my life. So kind of a bit of both. So when I found those coaches, it kind of probably started to formulate the way I wanted to set up environments where there was there was safety in the environment, but there was also enough leverage to be able for you to thrive as an individual. And I've tried to do that. I do a lot of short format coaching now in the T20 leagues and stuff like that. And typically you'll only get six weeks with a team. So you're as a head coach of a team, you have six weeks with your players, brand new players. That's it. You get six weeks to put this team together and to go win trophies. And it's incredibly difficult task. And it's very difficult to build those relationships up very, very quickly. So what we do is instead of, Focusing on that, we tend to focus on just, okay, well, what environment can you create very quickly? So we try and set up these environments where you mix it up with a lot of fun and enjoyment, but at the same time, there's, there's a fair amount of detail in the environment as well, if that makes sense. So there's no cut and paste rule. Eh? Every environment is very different. And every time I go into a new, join a new team, it's, okay, how do we put this together? It's very, very different and challenging, but it's good, it's good fun. Gary, could I pick up on something you said a minute ago? You talked about safety. 
You mentioned it twice, mm. actually. Mm. Why is safety so important? Because I've been, well, certainly in the cricket space. I mean, I don't know if other sports are like it, but I presume they are. It's a very egotistical place and it's kind of almost taboo or not wise to share vulnerability, to share with the rest of your teammates or with your coach that, no, I don't understand what you're saying, or I'm too scared to make a contribution in case I'm saying the wrong thing, or it's a stupid question, or it's better not to say anything because it's not my responsibility anyway. You're the leader. If the team does badly, you're the one that's going to get fired. So I don't have to say anything. I'll just look after myself. And I'm really battling at home and, and, and I'm homesick or I'm out of form and I don't think you should pick me the next game. And we're not conditioned to operate in environments like that. And I just think if you can get close to that as a coach of a group of people where individuals in your team can really be fairly open around just where they are as human beings and you build some trust in that, I think you then allow that expression of talent and that expression of this is who I am as a human being. And if if I'm in this team because you think I've got some talent and you allow me to express myself in my abilities as a human being in a very powerful way, I think you can achieve a lot. Yes, there are frameworks that we all have to work in because you're part of teams. So it's not just about this is not your own show and you just do what you want to do. I think there are frameworks. But it's wonderful to see that real expression of an individual in a team where he's really thriving in that environment because he can be who he needs to be within the framework of what the team requirements are. Gary, under your leadership, the Indian cricket team became Team India. And that mindset, I think, persists to this day. You've talked about safety. What are the other key elements of either values or behaviours that are the trademarks of high-performing teams? I think that each high-performing team, or each team, it doesn't have to be a high-performing team, to be honest with you. I think each team has a performance flow. The way of doing things becomes the non-negotiable. And I think the leader is the one who leads that and who drives that process. And I think you start to build a narrative within the team that becomes your story and the team story. And and I think when that narrative starts to create some life about it, when there's when it's got some feeling and it's got some real gravitas behind it, then I think you can go places with that narrative. I I think what what really changed for us with the Indian team, we shifted our behaviors. We sat together as a group of people one day and we said, okay, the Australians are arriving here. They're the number one test team in the world. Do we think that we could become the best cricket team in the world? And when we looked around the room and we looked at each other as individuals, there was enough skill and ability in the room to say, there's no reason why we can't be the number one test team in the world. And then we said, well, that's great because a lot of people can do that. You can do that, the Indian team, because you have enough skill in the room to match the skill that's arriving on these shores in a few weeks' time. But things need to fundamentally change in this environment for that to happen. And we started to articulate what were the things that would need to shift that would allow us to start um, building out a process to reaching our abilities as a group of people with the skill that sat in the room. And we realized that there was actually a lot of tangible stuff that we could shift, the way we practiced, the way we spoke to each other, the way we um, took responsibility for things that weren't necessarily our primary role within the team. We started to talk about the name on the front of the shirt, not the name on the back of the shirt, as more relevant to the individuals. So there was some really kind of stuff you could hold on to. We wrote this all down, and it was brilliant because as the players were writing it down and co-creating 
what they thought was the way forward for us as a group of people. It afforded me the opportunity then to have some words that I could use for the next three years that just became daily words into the team environment. So what did we do? We built a value system around how we wanted to live every day of our lives in the Indian team. And that was around uh, consistency in behaviors. And then we went and acted out on that every single day. And then we reflected on that, not every single day, but most days. So our, we started to even debrief our practices. Did we have a good practice or not a good practice? What worked well? What didn't work well? What did you do well? What did you not do well? So we started to become very detailed around everyday living. And then we, we took it a step further where we started to understand the Indian people, how they lived their lives and what were the things that really made the Indian people thrive and what were the things where Indian people did not thrive in or where did we see Indian people not at their best. And we started to build that narrative into the team as well. And then we looked at India at war and we said, when has India been its best in a wartime situation? And we started to understand how we respond in competition. There's this massive um, kind of journey we went on to then kind of narrowing our focus in terms of what we wanted to achieve as a group of people. The language ended up becoming very simple because daily we, we just started doing these things. I mean, our preparation improved about 100%. We had guys that never, ever took their batting equipment down to the nets. We had them hitting 100 balls at every practice. We started to do things very differently to the way they had been done before. And I think the guys started to enjoy that because they started to feel there's a bigger purpose here. And I think all teams thrive when they operate, not teams, organizations, groups of people, they thrive when they feel connected to that bigger purpose. And I think we were able to create that with the Indian team. The bigger purpose became more relevant than the name on the back of the shirt. Well, Team India go on and they win that 2011 World Cup. And there is an amazing picture of the team carrying you around the ground, which you don't see every day, Gary. But what caught my eye on that, that picture is Virat Kohli's pointing at you and he's mouthing something. And he's very emotional when he's saying it. And I was reading about it afterwards and you were saying, you know, you, you say that all players need to, they need to play for someone. Why is that? I do think we play for someone that inspires us. The question is how do we inspire I think it, there's a lot of different ways that a leader can inspire people. But if you can get to that space where you are inspiring people, I think it's a very powerful place because that, that idea or that concept of playing for someone, I think is a very powerful concept. I remember I certainly played my cricket for Duncan Fletcher at the beginning of my career. And why did I play for him? He put time into my game. He believed in me, back to me. I saw him as a father figure. And I knew that when I was batting, he was watching. Leaders in different ways, they can definitely inspire players to a higher level of performance without a doubt for whatever they offer that team. I'll give you another example. When I was with the South African cricket team, I thought one of the nice ways to potentially inspire the team is in physical endeavor. We're quite physical people, as you know, Australians are as well. And I was going through a phase in my life where I was getting involved in running marathons, and fitness has always been an important component for me as an, as an athlete when I was a player. And even when I finished playing, I still believed that physical fitness was, is really important. So <laughs> I embarked on a series of running marathons. And I was doing it while I was coaching the South African team. And I'll never forget, we had a test match 
I don't know who it was against, but it was in Cape Town, so it was a home test match for me. But I'd planned, I think the, the fourth day of the test match, I'd planned to run a marathon that morning. So, <laughs> so I kind of said to the assistant coach, would you mind warming the team up? Because I'm not going to be able to get to the ground in time. I can't run that quickly. But off I went for this marathon, and it started at about 5.30. It took me four hours to run it, finished at 9.30. I kind of arrived at the ground um, about 45 minutes before play started, went onto the field. I was pretty exhausted by then. And as I walked on, you know, the whole team kind of applauded that I'd like finished this marathon. But in many ways, it wasn't something that I did specifically. It was just something that I was doing as a physical endeavor for myself. But I know that it would have inspired one or two guys because they said, hey, the coach has just gone up this morning, woke up at 5.30 and he's gone running for four hours. And then he's going to watch us bat and play cricket. We better be up for it to be able to guard and make the performances that he would expect of us. So I think there are many smart little ways that you can do it. I used to be inspired by coaches who used to work hard in the nets because I just thought they put massive effort into our games. Um, I want to make sure I deliver on their effort in match situations. It is really important for, for players to see that individual who they look up to. Vera Kohli and I had an interesting relationship because he started his international career when I was the coach and he was a young guy, done really well as a junior. I remember having a he played in, in, in a one-day international that he was, I think it was his second or third game, was batting really well, and then just hit an off-spinner straight down to long on, walked off the crease out for 38. And I, I kind of looked at this and I said, that doesn't match up for me. So I decided to have a one-on-one with him the next day. And I just said to him, Vera, are you playing international cricket now? This is not India under 19. And what you did there yesterday is not acceptable. It's quite simple. <laughs> I just said, you've got to knock that ball for one and you've got to go get 100. And he still reminds me of that conversation. But I think what he was meant by it is someone was prepared to come up to me and kind of take me on in many ways about the way I was playing. And I think he that reminder was triggered him to say, well, hold on, I'm here to score hundreds, not to get a fancy 38. So I think that was the connection that we had. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you were preparing that team for the 2011 World Cup, I understand that the team didn't talk about the prospect of winning. Instead, the focus was all on the process. So I wanted to ask you what advice do you have for others on balancing? the anxiety of expectations with this motivational aspect of goal setting? Yeah, I mean, I think you're going to get a lot of different opinions on this. And I've just recently watched the documentary called The Last Dance. I don't know if you've seen it with Michael Jordan. And you look at that approach about fronting up to pressure and about expectation of performance. And the narrative there is we're just good enough. We just got to accept the fact that we're good enough and just get on with it. I think there are many ways that one can deal with this. I mean, our approach that we had, or certainly my approach as a a leader, is always 
I think the, the best performers in the world are able to separate the result from the actual show that they're putting on, which is the performance. When they're in the show, they're in the show. They're not in the result. And I think a lot of anxiety and expectation, maybe they, I don't know what they call it, the anxiety gap, comes from um, joining the performance with the results. In other words, what you're doing in that moment of theater is matched up to whether you're going to win or lose. And I think that's where a lot of athletes don't reach their full potential because they start to fear what that result might be. And then it plays out in the theater. Certainly the great sportsmen that I've worked with, cricketers that I've worked with, when they're in the theater, they're in the theater. They're there to put on a show, okay? And whatever happens, happens. And they don't actually really care what happens. More times than not, your real high performers, they kind of know that they're going to win more than they're going to lose because they're flipping talented. And what they've realized is that if I can really express my talent to its full degree, I'm more times than not better than others. And if they don't succeed on a day, they don't really care because they know that they're going to come back and they're going to, they're going to win the next time. So they're kind of able to separate that out. When they're on show, they're delivering on their skills. And isn't it beautiful to watch a team or to watch an individual just deliver on their skills without any worry about winning or losing? Just deliver that skill sets. And it is beautiful to watch. And sometimes some of the best sport that I've ever watched from an individual often doesn't result or doesn't end in in the positive result. I watched the Wimbledon final between Federer and Djokovic on the same day that England beat New Zealand in the World Cup cricket final. Um, Federer was sublime. He had two match points. It was beautiful to watch him play tennis. I wanted him to win with every bone in my body, but he didn't win. But he was in performance flow. So we need to appreciate the fact that Watching sport is also just about watching the theater around it. And for me, great sportsmen deliver on that theater. And that's why I watch sport. And that's why I'm in sport. I'm not a slave to the result. You will win more than you lose if you're good enough. Simple as that. And your processes are good. And you know you organized and you detailed and you prepared everything that we have to do in sport. You will win more than you lose. Sport will tell you that you're not going to win everything. And that's why we are involved in sport. And that is the beauty of sport. You're not going to win everything. So let's engage in the theater because that's actually what it's about. I don't want to watch a sporting event where I know one team is going to beat another team easily. It's irrelevant. It's not theater for me. I want the theater. I want the competition. I want it to be close. That's what I thrive and that's what I live on. And that's why I love sport. And I think sport teaches us, I think it teaches a, a lot in failure as much as it does in success. And as long as we can keep sport and unknown in the result, we've got theatre and that's what we've got to hold on to. Well, let's stick with success for a little bit yet before we get on to the failures because 2011, India's finished and you head over to coach South Africa and straight away you defeat England and you become the number one ranked test team in the world. Now, I may get this wrong, but when I was looking at the, just the makeup of the two teams, the South African team was multiracial and religious in a way that perhaps the Indian team wasn't. And I'm wondering, did your coaching have to evolve to take into account those differences in the South African team? I believe as a coach, you need to evolve without a doubt. Every environment is going to ask something different of you and you need to understand what that environment requires of you. A good friend of mine once said to me, coaching, you sometimes have to be a chameleon where you have to 
be different things to different people, or you have to be a different person to a different team. That's not to say that you have a complete shift in your leadership style. I would never be an autocratic leader ever, but I think I would learn on the road that this environment requires me to be a little bit more direct, or it requires me to create more instinct in the team or create more flair through the environment, or it requires a bit more detail and organization. So I think we need to just be able to oscillate as coaches a little bit within those requirements. I think the one danger that we can have as coaches is to take our style and our approach and think that for it worked in one team that it's going to work in another team. So I was very mindful when I went from the Indian team to the South African team, what does this environment require of me? Essentially two very different environments. The Indian environment, they needed a little bit more structure to their daily approach. They needed a bit more organization. They probably needed a leader who wasn't necessarily going to tell them what to do but a leader who was going to get them to fly in formation. The South African environment is slightly different. It's quite rigid environment. South Africans love to be told what to do, and they'll just get on and do the work. And I try to free the space up a little bit. I used to try to say to the guys, listen, I want you to take on the responsibility of making a decision in a big moment in a game because I back you for that decision. And I wanted to create a bit more instinct, a bit more flair, and a little bit more looseness around the environment, which... The South Africans didn't really like, to be honest with you. In the test team, we had a very organized, experienced bunch of players who were just 10% off. And all I focused on for those two years that I was with the team was that 10%. And, and what was that 10%? I think it was a peg in the ground. And that peg in the ground was, we should be the number one test team in the world. And then how do we hold that peg in the ground for two years? with the skill sets that we had in the environment that we've created. So there was a lot of stability in the environment already, but it just required that constant checking in, checking in, checking in. This is where we are. This is what we need to do tomorrow. This is what we need to do the next day because the South African team was guilty of kind of lots of highs and lows in their performances. And I think we, we try to, instead of doing this, try to just, kind of get onto a pathway of performance that was consistent. And with the skill sets that we had in the group, as I said, there was no reason why we shouldn't have been able to do that. And we did achieve it just by creating the awareness around it. Well, you've spoken a lot about the importance of mental skills and psychology to help athletes. And of course, you took Paddy Upton with you to India, who was a key part of your team as your mental conditioning coach. I wanted to just ask more broadly, Gary, if there's any top tips or anything you've learned about mental skills that non-athletes could apply in their everyday life? First of all, I think we all need some form of training around that. We train so much around our physical skills, and then we get confronted in a situation with the highest of pressure, and we don't really have the tools to manage it. I mean, I just think back to, as a player, to the World Cup semi-final against Australia in 1999, in Birmingham, where it was the highest pressure game that I'd ever been involved in. And there I was, the magician Shane Warne knocks over Herschel Gibbs. And I could see he's kind of delivering on what he's done as a high performer, which was incredible. It's like his moment in the sun. And here I am as a, as a player who's played a lot of cricket against him. It's match up two best teams in the world. I'm meant to be at the same level of mental skill that he is at. And I'm saying to myself, in the mat, I'm not there. I've had no training 
to get there. I don't know how to deal with this moment. I've now got to make my own decisions around what is going to be relevant and not relevant to do. And I ended up making a mental error in that game that, that cost me my wicket and certainly led, started the demise of our innings. But I just felt that if I'd been a little bit more mentally astute in that moment, it might have really helped me navigate that performance better than what I did. So in trying to answer your question, I think it is such an important component of every sportsman. And I just think that there's no holy grail to it. I don't think there's a one size fits all. I don't think that one person's got the magic over another person in those skills. <laughs> I think a journey we, is, we all have to go on. I brought Paddy, Paddy on to join me with the Indian team because I wanted him he had quite an impact on me as an individual. He's a qualified executive coach. And what he, what he did for me was he helped me build awareness around my game and around who my identity as a human being. And I think it was a very powerful piece for me because it gave me perspective in my life and really helped me in my performances as well. That doesn't necessarily work for everyone. It really worked for me. But I brought him on because I thought I'm not going to get vulnerable with me because I'm the coach and they must be able to get vulnerable with someone. They must be able to unpack with someone. So I said to Paddy, You've got to, for three years, you've got to do one-on-ones with the players and just allow them to share. I didn't realize how hard that job is. <laughs> he added a lot of value to me as a coach in that time that I, that I had with him and certainly had some significant impacts over the players. Probably his most notable was with Yuvraj Singh, who ended up being the man of the series in the World Cup 211. But Yuvraj was pretty much not picked for the World Cup, believe it or not. He wasn't in a good space and his form was bad. I was on that selection panel and I think he was the number 16th pick out of 16 players. Um, Nearly didn't get picked and ended up being man of the series. And I really credit Paddy to the effort that he put in to help Yuvrash through that journey to get him ready for that tournament. And that had a a massive influence on him now. How do you help your own kids deal with high-pressure environments? What a great question. With difficulty, jeez. I think the toughest leadership position I've ever been in is a father and parenting. Oh man, it's difficult. And then you've got to throw in, then you've got to mix parenting with coaching. It's a recipe for disaster. (laughs) You're doing okay there, Gary. Yeah, listen, I think it's a great breeding ground and learning ground for coaching, that's for sure. Both my kids have said to me in sessions that I've had in the nets with them because both my boys are keen cricketers. And one of them said to me once, Dad, don't coach me, was one comment he made. And my other son made the comment to me, Dad, you're talking too much. (laughs) So there were some great lessons around understanding coaching. I think probably the greatest lesson I take out of that is, as a coach, I'm a, a facilitator. I'm not an instructor. I'm a facilitator. The quality of my coaching is based on the, on the skills that I have as a facilitator. So what is facilitation? As we know, facilitation is being curious. It's asking the right question and it's trying to create a relationship where the player himself is learning and the player himself is coming up with the answers about their own game and the player themselves becomes their best coach. And I'm very excited about coaching in that space because I think it is incredibly skillful to not instruct and tell someone what you see because they might not know the information and you do, but to flip it around and to facilitate their learning in such a way that they find out the answers for themselves. And it takes time. 
but I'm doing, I'm practicing with my sons. The exciting thing is certainly my oldest son is 17 now. He can unpack his bowling technique and he can unpack a match strategy for a 20 over game in terms of what he wants to do. He's now starting to work out how to analyze an opposition batsman and how he can bowl to them. And he's starting to formulate decent game plans around his own batting. So, and all I've tried to do is just be really curious around his learning. And it's a very exciting way to coach. If I could just maybe flip this over and talk about leadership from a different angle, because in cricket, you have this situation, of course, where the captain leads on the pitch and the coach really steps back and isn't as involved. You've had experiences and great captains. I mean, probably one of the best ever was MS Tony, and you, you worked with him when you were in India. And then you get to South Africa and you had Graham Smith for a short period and then AB de Villiers. But from this experience, what advice do you have for others when it comes for to selecting a team leader or a leadership group within the team? Yeah, that's a good question. So, so two, those are two fantastic leaders. And I think in very different ways, incredible leadership qualities. MS for me, very quiet guy, not a huge orator, but an incredible presence as a human being walked his talk, led by example, a warrior-style personality. I'll get out in, in the front lines and I'll take on the heat. And that was an enduring quality. I think guys wanted to follow him. They wanted to be with him. He also had early success in his captaincy career after winning the T20 World Cup in Tour 7 in South Africa as a young captain. So there was a presence about him. Um, Graham, very different. A great orator. Quite a big guy. An assuming guy termed as a player, a strange technique, but got the result. Um, also walked his talk and led by example and was prepared to front up to pressure. But I think he had great presence because guys wanted to play for him. They really felt that he was the main guy in the environment. But I've been involved in 20 over cricket over the last six or seven years. And I'm finding it because of the use of data in the short, shorter formats. And there's a lot of off the field research that has been happening amongst analysts and coaches that are giving teams a competitive advantage. I mean, the margins are so narrow in the shorter formats. You have one bad bowling strategy, you could lose a game. One bad over, you could be out if you get the wrong matchup. So the coaches are getting a lot more detailed and organized around game strategies. And I feel there's a great opportunity now for coaches to take on a more relevant role on the field. There are only two ways to do that. One is to get the captains to buy into the strategy conversations, which captains are quite reluctant to do because they like to go with their feel and the way they do things on the field. And when you're talking about test cricket or ODI cricket, more times than not, that works. But the captains that are embracing a more detailed approach to game strategy are the ones that are coming through. I'll give an example. Owen Morgan, the England captain, is a big advocate for good game strategy preparation around the, the stats and the, and the data. So I think we're in changing times where I think that the coach is going to take a more important role. And I think the coach is going to be able to communicate with the captains on the field with game strategy as well. So we're going to see a bit of a change in that, I think, in the modern game, which is not what cricket is used to. Cricket is still used to the captain running the show on the field. And certainly test cricket, that will be true for a long time. But as we start to take some of the learnings out of other professional sports, I think the coach is going to take on a more relevant role, which is very exciting for me. I'm loving that fact. Gary, you've been very generous with your time. I'd just like to ask one final question, if I could, to close. And before I ask it, I'd like to play back a quote of yours to you. You say, I don't coach to win trophies. I do it to add value to people's lives so I can help a group of people move forward in terms of where they are. So in closing, I'd like to ask, when you do hang up that whistle, 
in the distant, distant future. What's the legacy you hope you've left as a coach? So I don't want to leave a legacy because that would be very arrogant to think that I'm big enough in the world to have a legacy left behind me. So I love the concept of adding value to people's lives um, with the knowledge and understanding and learnings that I've taken. Um, That quote is absolutely true. I'm not in coaching to win trophies, although I know that I'm measured by that. So I feel the pain when we don't win as much as anyone feels the pain because I know that I am measured by the win-lose column as we should be in sport. But I actually don't do it for that. I want to be in in the theatre. I want to be in the drama of the event. Um, And I love being engaged in that. Whatever the result is, is the result. And I accept I accept that. I know that if I've got a good team and we've we've done a good job in our prep, a really good chance of winning more games than we lose. And any coach in cricket that wins more games than they lose buys himself time. And when you buy yourself time, you can have more of an influence over a team or an individual. So the only reason, Paul, why I'm in coaching is to buy myself more time. (laughs) Now, Gary, I'm not going to let you off the hook. Can I challenge you on that? Yes, We obviously haven't met before today, but I think there's something in there about humility and vulnerability. And I think those are not traits that are common, particularly, well, from the knowledge that I have of speaking to cricket coaches, I don't think they are particularly common traits. And so I think that you've opened those up as traits that can be effective in a leader. And I think that may be maybe a legacy that that lives on a little bit. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Thank you. And it's not a challenge, by the way. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think the amazing thing is, Paul, is uh, the older I get, is that I've accepted learning more and more the older I've got. And I don't know if it's the same for you, but it's it's incredible how we are more open to learning the older we get. And maybe it's because our perspective is that we've achieved success along the way. So you're not chasing the success as much anymore. Now, I'm not a 35-year-old, just retired coach, and I've got to prove to people that I can coach. So I've got to tell people what I can do to be a good coach. I'm much more accepting of where I am. It just opens oneself up to learning, which is amazing. I think there's a degree of self-confidence that comes from having many, many yeah. failures. And so therefore you're open to keep learning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gary Kirsten, wonderful to spend a little bit of time talking with you today. Thank you so much for your time and good luck for the uh, upcoming uh, season. Once you're back coaching in India again. Yeah. Thanks, Paul. Hi everyone, it's Paul here and you have been listening to our discussion with the great coach Gary Kirsten. The key highlights for me were how teams have a performance flow that is driven by the process that the leader champions and how this flow generates a narrative within the team that guides and motivates them. How when you allow athletes to express themselves as human beings and give them freedom within a framework to use their abilities, then you will get the most from them and wanting to leave a legacy of adding value to people's lives and through that, being able to experience the drama of the sporting event. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And just before we go, if you are one of the people who has listened to our podcast in one of the 50,000 times it has been played, and you have any feedback, an element of leadership you would like us to explore, or you know a great coach that you think we should interview, then please let us know. You can contact us using the details in the show notes. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 